Hello, and welcome to our podcast, Where the Dark Corners Are. Dark Travels hostess. Tonight, I'm joined by the, the fam, the, the podcast gang. fam. Oh, did you the see gang. that? The fam. The fam. The fam Damn. Fam. Family. Not family. <laughs> <laughs> They're a weird family. Fast and furious through your ears. I so, yeah. The so sound. If you don't recognize that voice. What does that mean? It means you. <laughs> you, you know, if I go to the drive-thru, I'm usually called ma'am. <laughs> really? Yeah, it's so bad. <laughs> Fun fact. They'll be like, that'd be twenty-seven fifty, ma'am. Oh my God. <laughs> yes. All right. <laughs> if it makes you feel better, I'm pretty sure I have a Scarlett Johansson voice. My kids listen to a different one, and they're like, "Mom, you sound sick. You, you have sound- a stuffed <laughs> nose." I'm like, "Thanks, guys." They're like, dang, they sound like Scojo. <laughs> Thanks. Got the man voice. The man voice. Hi. Hi. Where are the drugs going? Yeah, try being what? try being mean, and we'll go to work with this voice. Get out. <laughs> Stop resisting. Stop, <laughs> Stop doing that. All right. So uh, if you can't tell, I'm joined tonight by the panda bear. Hello. The polar bear. Hello. And slashers with Samantha. Hey. Why you call her Slashy Sam? Slashy Sam? We've gone back and forth between yeah. slashers Sammy Sam, Slasher. slashers with Samantha. All the good stuff. All the good ones. So, what's your name? The Bunny. I'm the Bunny. Oh my God, you don't say we go that. over this yeah, every just, single episode. But she never says it. If I have to be a character, you have to be a character. Yeah. There's a lot of humans in this zoo. It's pretty obvious by the podcast cover who I am. That's, that's just. Do you the, even look? It's, yeah, it's the Bunny. Yes, but you don't say that's you though. Oh, I'm assuming everyone would know. I'm assuming does. Yeah, it makes an ass out of just you. Oh. <laughs> and I guess me is the other part. It's just me. So, the... <laughs> Got her. <laughs> <laughs> so, on the night of this release for this particular podcast episode would be September 1st. The day before, August 31st, is actually the anniversary of a reign of terror that strikes London, England. And I'm, of course, referring to the reign of terror that occurs in 1888. And, of course, I'm referring to Jack the Ripper. Oh, I know you wanted to say that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, she was like, all together now. I'm waving my hand. I guess that wasn't an indicator. Well, I didn't know we were doing that. <laughs> Should we take that again? Let's try this one more time. You want me to say Jack? He says the. <laughs> no, it's fine. Go wave. Yeah. You, missed, you missed it. You had to be there. <laughs> You play too much. Now, interestingly enough, there were other women found slain in the streets of London, the East End, and other areas. And for some particular reason, 
something about their bodies, the way that they were killed, or something didn't seem correct to the police, that not all of the slain women during this reign of terror get lumped together as a victim of Jack the Ripper. What they did settle on, what they refer to as the conical five ladies whose bodies get basically left in the street with the exception of the last victim, and that's where they're found, just literally spewed, slashed and spewed. Nobody cared. Well, you know what? terrible. That reading about life in Victorian England, I mean, Jesus fucking Christ. Talk about brutal life. And just, I I can understand why um, alcohol was rampant. I can understand why prostitution was rampant. I mean, we look at England now, and um, they've had two female prime ministers. But the point is, is that 140 years ago, that was not the situation. Women in pretty much all walks of life, unless you had money, you were basically a servant. You were a servant to your family, to your husband, to the jobs that they were only allowed to work, you know, domestic servant or cook or you know, just prostitute. I mean, they were really in a very oppressed sex. Right. Yeah, it was terrible. From what I read was that when the man died, whether it was the girl's father or husband, they had to make arrangements like a will type thing. What would happen to the woman? Like, if there was no arrangements made, they were pretty much shit out of luck. Like, right, and the, the, prob- and the probability of the woman inheriting any money was slim to none. No, and I mean, not just inheritance-wise, but like... They had to arrange for them to get a job or arrange for a marriage or arrange for something else. But if there was none of that, that, that's it. Out in the street you go. Literally. And those streets were fucking nasty. Mm -hmm. People, you know, shat, pissed, had sex, gave birth. Nice. I mean, this is is nasty shit. On the east side of London was crowded. Like, I read that they had to, they couldn't. There wasn't enough apartments or houses or whatever to rent out. They were selling beds. They would sell a bed for the night. Right. It's kind of like almost San Francisco and uh, New York now. Here's a closet for a thousand fucking bucks. It's just prostitutes were pooling money to sleep in a room and or drunks and alcoholics or women would take lovers to have a place to stay. Everybody was drunk. It just seemed like it was really fucking brutal. I, I don't know how well I would have fared, quite honestly. And disease was rampant. And we're not talking, you know, just typhoid or... or oh, tuberculosis. Tuberculosis. And, and that's just regular diseases. Then you got your fucking sexual diseases that you can't... You don't have cures for. Syphilis. Scratchy, was, scratchy. Well, <laughs> then it made your brain go rotten after a couple of years. So, I mean... Victorian England was motherfucking brutal. And I just, just reading these stories about their lives, I'm going, oh my fucking God. A lot of sympathy towards these women. What was the turning point for them to get out of that? 1900s? Honestly, I think technology. Better technology in the factories and, you know, the shift of the nasty air pollution and women's rights. Better wages. 
people's rights, a recognition of better education. You just, uh, and it goes to show, I mean, crime is rampant. This, this whole thing, they focus on Jack the Ripper, yes, but I said other women were slain, and there are, were other women who, for the most part, almost makes the cut, excuse the pun, <laughs> of almost being one of his victims. So it just, I don't really know what it was that made the determination that these are the definite five as opposed to the others. So it, it just, but it does kick off a reign of terror, which is odd because, I mean, they were people were getting shanked left and right and left for dead. So these were literally pretty motherfucking brutal if these are the ones that stand out, in my mind, in this harsh living conditions. So, so like I said before, on August 31st, 1888, the horrifically mutilated body of what is considered to be his very first victim, her body is found in the gateway in, a set, in an area called Bucks Row in Whitechapel in London East End. The unfortunate woman, her name is Marianne Nichols. A little background. She was born on August 26, 1845 to Carolyn Walker and Edward Walker. They lived in a very cramped industrial area of London called Fleet Street. She was given the nickname Polly. Polly had two brothers, Edward and Frederick. And she was able to remain in school until the age of 15, which was not common back then. Right. They got out like 13, 14, and like, I mean, like, even like the graduating age was like at 15, you can just go. And, but, I mean, right. But her dad did push for an education. Now, Fleet Street was, as we mentioned, part of the overcrowdedness. There was very limited access to clean water and very little air for circulation. Basically becomes, this area basically becomes a perfect place for disease breeding and deadly outbreaks of cholera and typhus. I mean, those were common. But then tuberculosis sweeps through, kills her mom in 1852. And unfortunately... The brother, Frederick, also dies a year and a half later. So she loses her mom, she loses her brother, and Polly's the only girl in the house. So now she's expected to cook clean and basically perform all the household duties at the age of nine. Now, at age 18, Polly goes and marries a gentleman by the name of William Nichols, who was a machinist. A year later, they welcome their first child, uh, William Edward Walker, who unfortunately dies 18 months later. So he's not even two years old. The first baby dies, and this is when Polly begins to drink. And we're talking pretty heavily. Now, Polly and William will go on to have five more children, but they say she never recovers from the death of William. And I get it. I mean, this is her first baby, and just, I mean, it's sad and it's tragic. Now, in 1876, they're actually offered better housing on Stamford Street, and this place was, by definite comparison, considered relatively clean. It was a lively neighborhood and basically more space for the family. But Polly and William were arguing a lot. They think maybe it had something to do with financial difficulties as well as Polly's drinking. She never recovers, so the, the, the drinking is consistent. But after the birth of her fifth son in 1878, it gets worse because she develops postnatal depression. 
Now, so she's on, she's boozing it up. On top of everything else, Polly learns that William is actually having an affair with another woman in the building. And so Polly decides, I'm out. Goodbye. And she basically begins this disastrous spiral of events of her life. After leaving William, she's literally destitute. And she goes into the workhouse. And I don't know if you guys know about these workhouses in London, England, but they were fucking brutal. They just broke people. So can you explain the workhouse? Because I re- read about that about my character, and then I was like, I'm really not understanding what the hell a workhouse is. So it's basically like a place where you were you go to work off your debt sometimes, and they just broke you. They uh, you they shaved your head, they took all, all your possessions. You did what they told you. You, I mean, it, it, there were I mean, people would die in heaps, and innocent people would fall into these heaps, and they didn't give a fuck about the living. People would die in the dead heaps and just brutal. And these workhouses went on until the 50s, I think, 1950s. So, I mean, just unreal places. Now, she's in and out of the workhouse for the next eight years. She's in and out of family homes trying to get her shit together, but she can't do it. The, the alcoholism is just too much. And she just basically falls into the one type of career, and that's, you know, putting it very nicely, of (laughs) prostitution. And all of these events basically bring to her final morning of her life of August 31st, 1888. But the night before, August 30th, she was seen drinking at such places as the, the Frying Pan Pub, as well as other places. And what it was, as you had mentioned earlier, how they kind of rented beds. She couldn't return back to her lodgings because she didn't raise the money. And the lodgings, just so you know, for her was four pence. So at, on August 31st at 1.20 a.m., she sets off thinking she's going to raise the money. A little while later, she runs into a roommate by the name of Emily Holland, and she runs into her by a shop on the junction of Osborne Street and Whitechapel Road. Holland tries to convince Nichols to come with her. Hey, we'll just figure this out, no problem. But Nichols, you know, basically waves her off and says, no, no, I got to get my money. Now, around 3.30, a pair of delivery drivers, one of which name is Charles Cross, happens upon her on Buck Row, which is literally just off of Whitechapel and is about 10 minutes from the corner where Mary and Emily had seen each other. So we're talking less than two hours since they saw each other in a 10-minute walk. And these guys aren't sure if she's dead or alive. They note that her skirt is pulled up and the lower garment... And, and, you know, some of her garments a bit ruffled before calling the police. But they kind of look a little closer and they see that her throat has been sliced. And it's pretty obvious that she's dead. So they they hunt down the closest constable, a constable by the name of John Neal. And this is what he says. And I'm just going to quote him. There was not a soul about... I examined the body by the aid of my lamp and noticing blood oozing from a wound 
in the throat. She was lying on her back with her clothes disarranged. I felt her arm, which was quite warm from the joints upward. Now, later on, he will give the, uh, the testimony during the inquest will be given regarding the condition of her body will be five of the teeth are missing and there was a slight laceration of the tongue. There was a bruise running along the lower part of the jaw on the right side of the face that might have been caused from a blow from a fist or pressure from a thumb. There was a circular bruise on the left side of the face which might have been inflicted by the pressure of the fingers. On the left side of the neck, about one inch below the jaw, was an incision about four inches in length and ran from point from a point immediately below the ear. On the same side, in an inch below, and commencing about one inch in front of it, was a circular incision which terminated at the point of three inches right below the right jaw. That incision completely severed all tissues down to the vertebrae. The large vessels of the neck on both sides were severed. The incision was about eight inches in length. The cuts must have been caused by, by a long-bladed knife, moderately sharp, and used with great violence. No blood was found on the breast, either the body or the clothes. There were no injuries about the body, just about the lower part of the abdomen. Two or three inches from the left side was a wound ring, running from a dagger manor. The wound was very deep. The tissues were cut through. There were several incisions running across the abdomen. There were three or four similar cuts running downwards on the right side, all of which have been caused by a knife, which had been violently, which had been used violently and downwards. The injuries were from left to right and might have been done by a left-handed person. All injuries were caused by the same instrument. Now, there was a lack of blood at the crime scene, and because nobody actually heard the murder take place, like her screaming out or her calling for help, they don't believe that she was actually murdered there. They believe that her body was dumped there. Now, the other thing that const the constable says is that there was a mass of congealed blood underneath her body when she was moved from the scene. So she, maybe she was still alive because she was still bleeding. And so at this time, Inspector Spattling of the Metropolitan Police J Division arrives to take the description, the time. They didn't know who she was. And they realize, in addition to the throat being cut and the gashes running along her abdomen, she's been disemboweled. Her body gets taken to the mortuary where her father and her eldest son, both names Edward, Edward Walker, her father, and Edward Nichols, her son, identifies her body. And this, I, this just catapults this entire brutal situation into the news. And because of this, the, her funeral actually gets taken place in secrecy in order to prevent you know, morbid people from checking out what Public happened. Like from seeing what's going on. Correct. But they see her carriage and they join her procession just the same. She gets buried on September 6, 1888 at the, the youthful age of 43. And just side note today, people still go and pay their respects to Polly. And not only do they leave flowers, 
but people tend to leave coins for pence that would have paid for her lodging and prevented her from being the victim of Jack the Ripper. So that's Polly. Very interesting. <clears throat> so Jack the Ripper's second victim was Annie Chapman. and Her body was found on September 8th, 1888. Annie was born Annie Eliza Smith in September of 1841. She married a coachman named John Chapman when she was 28 years old and they had three children. In 1885, Annie and her husband separated because of her drunken and immoral ways. And because you, this is not a visual medium for everyone out there, it's drunken and immoral, immoral ways. So the patriarchy got to love it because he was also a drunk, but somehow it was her fault that they separated. Whatever. Yeah, there was a lot of evil. What? Evil woman. <laughs> <laughs> There was a lot of hypocrisy in the laws of England. Like a woman couldn't divorce her husband for adultery, but the husband can can get a divorce on the premise of adultery. So a lot of bullshit. A lot of bullshit. Yeah, so it had to be her fault. So regardless, he her husband continued to send her allowance of 10 shillings a week until he passed away on Christmas Day in 1886. And after his death, she took to prostitution because she had no other way to make money. So prior to her death, Annie had a relationship with a man named Edward Stanley, and Stanley often paid for her bed at the Crossingham's lodging house, and he paid for her bed and some other chick's bed. So, playa playa. He occasionally spent the weekends with her, and before their death, it w- before her death, it was said that her and that other woman were seen fighting and often having friction. So, I don't know if and this man doesn't sound like someone I would fight over, but teach his own. At around 1.30 a.m. on the morning of her murder, Annie returned to the lodging house. The night watchman, John Evans, was sent to collect the money for her bed, which she did not have. She asked John to keep her bed for her, and she left, headed for Spitalfields Market. And like you had talked about with your victim, uh, she also apparently find money to drink, but couldn't find money for her bed that night, which is why she went back out. At around 5.30 a.m., Elizabeth Long sees Annie speaking to a man near 29 Hanbury Street. She hears the man ask, will you? And Annie responds, yes. A few minutes after the sighting, Albert Kadush, a young carpenter that lives at 27 Hanbury Street, walks into a backyard and hears voices. The only words that he can make out is a young woman saying no or is a woman saying no and uh, something falling against the fence. So Annie's body was discovered a little bit before 6 a.m. on September 8th by John Davis, a carman that also lived at 29 Hanbury Street. Her body was found in the backyard with her arm over her chest, her legs drawn up, her face and tongue were swollen, and her face was bruised and rigor had not yet set in. Her body was severely mutilated. There was a deep cut on her throat, like the same with victim one, very deep. It appeared that someone had tried to separate the bones in the neck. And then there was also two deep cuts on the left side of her spine. Her abdomen, I can never say that word right. Her abdomen was cut open and her intestines were severed and lifted out and placed on the body. It's kind of weird. The bladder and part of her vagina were removed, and there was no trace of them at the scene. Her rectum was left fully intact, which was kind of interesting compared to the first one. And the body mutilation indicated that the killer had 
uh, knowledge of the body and how to do something like that. And the murder weapon, as with the same, was the same as victim one. It was a long, uh, thin, narrow blade, and they speculated that the instrument was one that medical men would use for post-mortem purposes. So now they're probably thinking maybe he has some medical knowledge or something related to cutting or gutting bodies. Precise knowledge, precise knowledge of the body, where to find what's and what he specifically wants. Right. Which yummy. Yeah, and the vibe I was getting was less of a doctor and more of like a mortician. Mm -hmm. Okay. So So a mortician, you have to, you're not a doctor, but you do have to know. Where the body organs are. You're you're pulling everything out. out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to take the shit out or else it goes And they were doing autopsies back then. Yeah. Which was a thing. If they asked for it or done whatever. I think they start doing, I know because getting a little bit ahead, my victim gets an autopsy. My, the last victim gets an autopsy. So the third victim of, what is it, canic- canically? Conically? Conically? Uh, canonical. Third, the third victim canonical. of the canonical victims of yeah. Mr. Ripper. Elizabeth Long Liz Stride. Birth name is Elizabeth Gustafader. <laughs> Gustafader. Was she German? She was Swedish. Oh, okay. So she was born the 27th of November in 1843 in Torslanda, Sweden. Her father was a carpenter, mother stay-at-home mom. She did have siblings, but she wasn't in poverty, and Sweden seemed to be rocking its own thing, hanging out, but she ends up just kind of moving out and going to the next city of uh, Gothenburg, and there she picked up dating and providing services and cleaning. So, dating? It, yeah, she so she chose to choose that life of prostitution and... She opted for it. Yeah, she opted for it. So most, you know, most of your victims were kind of forced to do it because they need money. They need to do that. But she kind of seemed to go her own route, and she was living in the big city, and I guess that she either figured she liked it or she just thought it was simple enough to get the job done. So, but, and then there's, there's records starting with 1865 from the police records stating that she was doing that. She was caught multiple times prostituting out, doing everything, and. So it was pretty young. So age sixty five, she was already about twenty something, right? Yeah. So in eighteen sixty six, she actually leaves Gothenburg to London. Now they don't really know why she would have done that, but she because she has no family. She's from Sweden, and she, when she gets down there, she claims to that, tells them like, "Oh, I have family here," or "Oh yeah, due to her employment in domestic service of a gentleman near a, near Hyde Park." So she she makes all these weird excuses to come down. She just kind of seems off in the first place, but she's living her best life. She's doing what she wants to do. When she, But the only way she's able to do that is because her mom dies. She gets a small inheritance from her mom, and she takes the money and just goes to London. While she's down there, she ends up meeting a man in 1869 named John Stride. So where she picks up the surname Stride. So she becomes a little Stride. Uh, he's a ship carpenter, and he was 22 years older than her, though. Oh. But they, she gives up that life, and they go make a coffee shop. And they started business together, and they tried to run it together. But he kept working as a carpenter and providing as the coffee shop, running both things. Unfortunately, by 1874, their marriage started to deteriorate, deteriorate. But they continued to live together because it was so expensive to keep on living. And then he ended up dying in 1884 of tuberculosis. Which, I mean, like I said. Another, many, many of the diseases out there. Right. Wiping them out. So, in September 29th of 1888... She she's going lodging to lodging place, same thing. She's prostituting around, making enough money just to stay for the night. Um, she is known 
that so September 29th is the day before she's murdered. She dies on September 30th. Okay. So she was known to at least clean two rooms at her lodging house that she was staying at. Stride and frequently visited the Queen's Head pub, and she was seen around 6.30 p.m. before returning alone to her lodging house. That's more eyewitnesses' accounts. Stride's movements later in the me- evening of the 29th and in the morning. So one of the first ones, witnesses saw a short man with a dark mustache wearing a morning suit and a bowler hat whom she was seen around 11 p.m. close to Burner Street. Another witness placed a stride at the company of a man wearing a peaked cap, black coat, and dark trousers around 11.45. She was standing with this decently dressed man who uh, they repeatedly kissed before the man said to her, you would say anything but your prayers. At 12.35, Police Constable William Smith saw a stride with a man wearing a hard-filled hat standing opposite in Whitechapel. The man was carrying a package about 18 inches. Having no reason to feel suspicious, Smith continued to on his beat in the direction of the commercial road. Between 12.35 and 12.45, a dock worker saw a woman he believed to be stride standing her back against a wall on Burner Street, speaking to the man with average build in a long black coat. Brown heard, heard, heard stride say, no, not tonight, some other night. So at approximately 1 a.m., stride's body was found by a man named Louis Deemschutz. He was coming home riding on his carriage with his horse, being horse-drawn. And the horse stopped. And he's like, why did you stop? He, the horse wouldn't move. So he sees something on the floor. He gets out. He lights a match. And he sees her body crumpled in the middle of this yard. <laughs> so he panics. He goes inside the nearest building. And he tells them, hey, there's a body outside, this and that. And they go to see her. And it's her. But her body's still warm. and But her body's not mutilated like the rest of your guys's. The throat was slit, and it was it was slit so far deep that it was almost decapitated, so it was barely holding on in the first place. But blood was still coming out. The body was warm, and so it, it was determined that they think the Jack the Ripper was still in the yard when he went to go get help. Do they think she was still alive if blood was still oozing? Not if your neck is basically decapitated. I just... So... Do so yeah, they it, find they find the body. Right. He goes in there. So they're saying in between that time, they believe that a horse wouldn't move because it already knows to see something bad's happening. Right. And they determined that the Jack Ripper might have still been there. Okay. Because it was So basically he's interrupted is what I'm hearing. Right, because the body is not nearly mutilated like the rest of you guys. So they did determined that that he was interrupted because Davies he interrupted coming, him. Yeah, he's coming back. Okay. That was recent. Right, I mean, if she's still warm, to me, if she's still warm and the blood is still oozing, I mean, I just, that's so, I mean, have you just been there right, 30 just fi- seconds before? He just stopped at a pub or something, or however, he, you know, I don't know what he did. He was coming home. Right. And But, I mean, at first, a lot of people didn't think that this was even Jack the Ripper because there was no extra mutilation. Right. So, a lot of people were kind of like, well, is it really connected but which, unfortunately, they kind of determined is because literally 45 minutes later, right? He, they find right, right, Catherine Eddowes, right. So, but they just thought it was kind of weird that this person would be the victim. It's it was like not in the same vicinity as much of the rest of them. They just thought maybe there was there was an extra mutilation. But like I said, they later kind of guessed the fact that because the body wasn't mutilated and wasn't 
anywhere as bad as the rest of your guys's. No body parts are missing. Well, and it's weird that he's out in the middle of the street with her anyways. To me, because you're you're risking the chance of traffic coming through. Well, she she's seen like three times. Well, allegedly seen three times. Right. So, and these, these could be all different men too. Right. Well, that but, was I mean, my thinking. But it's a small span of guys, but because none of the descriptions are all the same. They have some similarities, but it's not the same. Right. So I don't know. So he didn't, I, I I generally think, I don't know. I'm not convinced it was him because of, I mean, he's literally out in the open. Well, the old, there's the, the yard itself, the way it was described was, is it's almost like a, I'm going to say a courtyard. So like if it was, so there's only one way in. So it's a dead end if you were going to go and try to go anywhere else. So there's buildings around it. Right. And there's only one way to come out. And that's the way he was coming in, the guy who found the body. Okay. So there's only one way to leave, and and if no one's out at 1 a.m. in the morning, he can do whatever he wants. So there's he can see where the, someone's going to come. Right, right, where he would be which, found out. Yeah, which, personal opinion here, but as I was reading up on him and listening to other, you know, opinions about what's going on, that was, I feel like that was the good, like, good for him thing of targeting ladies of the night. Because it took all the work out of it. They know where to go. The crowded streets of, you know, London, whatever. They know where to go. To take their jobs. Secluded their to jaunts. do business, you know. Y- they know where to be alone for um, 30 seconds to 45 minutes. Uh, um, I don't know a man <laughs> who can last 45 minutes. <laughs> but they um, are. They're more. They're yeah. easier to attack. Yeah, so... You know, he, he you could just pose as a customer or whatever. Let's do whatever we got to do. She takes him to the area where she's going to die. And that's so sad, just thinking about that. But historically, I mean, even now, we don't really look for sex workers. And so they definitely didn't look for sex workers then. Exactly. It's still a thing. I mean, that's why they're such easy and unfortunate targets of just, you know, Sick assholes out there. So okay, so his fourth victim is Catherine Eddowes. So, like you said, forty-five minutes later, um, Catherine Eddowes is found dead, just east of where um, Elizabeth was Elizabeth found. was mm-hmm. found. So Catherine Eddowes, background on her, she was born in Wolverhampton, England, on April 14, 1842. Her father worked at a tin plate factory, and he was a leader of a union, and this is when unions would go on strike a lot and stuff like that. So he was, you know, they would all pre-plan the strike and go on a strike and stuff. So he actually got... Getting in with the big, you know, getting in trouble with the big uh, supervisors and whatever because of the union thing. He actually loses his job at the tin plate fi- uh, factory, w- which forces them to move to London, the whole family. So she was one of 12 children, 12 siblings, I guess. And he got a pretty good job in London. 
it was another factory job, which was considered really, you know, pretty good paying if you have two or three kids, not if you have 10 or 12 kids. And two kids passed away at an early age, so she ended up with nine other siblings. <laughs> like you said before, you know, disease was rampant, and ironically enough, her mom died of consumption, which is tuberculosis, uh, on November 1855. And because they lived in such tight quarters, her dad, you know, they, they shared the bed and everything, that, you know, they couldn't get away. So he actually got sick just like a year later. And her dad made arrangements for her to go stay back at Wolverhampton with his brother or uncle and aunt. Like a domestic servant or just? Just so they would take care of her, I guess, type thing. Okay. But... I guess he was the uncle was a really nice guy, and he worked at the same tin tin factory, and he got her a job there. Oh, she she went to school. She was one of the few siblings that went to school until she was fourteen years old, which was good. Yeah, I mean. which was yeah better than most. Some of her older siblings uh, were less educated, and it's known because instead of signing their uh, marriage certificate, they put an X because they didn't know how to write. Right. So, anyway, the uncle gets her a job at the tin plate factory, and she works there for a while, and as she works there, there's an area where uh, plates, the the silverware, the cutlery, whatever, gets set to dry after it's all finished. And as she's leaving work, she snatches little things here and there every so often. Oh, she's a little klepto. Yeah. uh, Just heads up, she's not a good person. I don't like her at all. <laughs> so she's stealing all these little things, and, you know, there's people around, so she she gets caught, and she gets fired from her job. And because she's bringing the bad name to her uncle and the aunt, she gets kicked out. Which makes sense. Right. If you speak on someone's behalf. Mm-hmm. So she fa- falls in love with a man named Thomas Conway. Thomas Conway is just this rebel guy that's kind of a piece of shit, and he doesn't like the rules. He doesn't like working at, like, a factory or a steady job. He likes doing his own thing. They end up traveling and selling wares, like, on the street corner, like, you know, where he lays out the blanket and he's, you know, whatever he stole or whatever, wherever he got it from, and he sells it, and she would just hang out with him, and she would sing on the street for change because she was good at singing and she that's what she loved doing as years go by you know she gets she got pregnant they had quite a bit of kids and then some of them passed away so i don't have exact number of how many kids she had but she liked to party and she liked to drink Mm. and it's kind of funny because at least your guys's women not so much his they have all these things in common like the the, their short money, the alcoholism, the, you know, losing their parents early type thing. So they end up moving to Lon- London with the kids and his business isn't cutting anymore. And at family events, uh, she always shows up with bruises. So she was a victim of a domestic violence situation. And they assume it was due to her drinking. And her siblings actually blame her or the domestic violence. They're saying that he beats her because of her drinking. Like, he's trying to make a better person out of her. <laughs> like, trying to beat the alcoholism <laughs> yeah. out of her? Yeah. Okay, because that's not how that works at all. <laughs> yeah, and then it, 
doesn't, you know, his job doesn't work out. Uh, she's in now. What are those uh, workhouses? Workhouses. The one that they were talking about was actually decent one because it had like a you could drop like you drop your kids off and like if they were seven or older they actually take them to school. But uh, the little guys they just take kind of watch them while you go work and do whatever you got to do. But she would disappear weeks of the time. Child neglect. Her kids got taken away. Are we talking like alcoholic benders? Like she would just vanish. I don't know, partying, maybe alcoholic benders because like there was instance where both of them actually, they, they told their kids, hey, uh, stay here on the corner. We'll be right back. And they were gone for like a week. And, you know, the kids got picked up by whatever authorities and got taken away and all, all the other stuff. And it's just. It doesn't make any sense to me the way they live their life, but either way, they split up, and then she got together with uh, Mr. John Kelly, and as a character, I guess he was a little better, but the thing that John Kelly and Catherine had in common was drinking. That's how they met. That was the thing they had in common, so that's what they did together for fun. So their relationship didn't make anything better. She actually lost a lot of relationship with her siblings. Because of uh, borrowing money type thing, situations, you know. Her addict yeah. behavior. Yeah. And they were like just addict behavior. So the night before her death, which was the same night that Elizabeth Elizabeth was murdered. <laughs> I contribute. It's like <laughs> fill in the blanks. Right. Yeah. yeah. Hey. Finish <laughs> each other's sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> what was it? September 30th? Mm-hmm. So the night before, the 29th, her and John were out and about, and they were trying to scramble for money, exactly like your guys' characters. And it is said that John actually had to sell his shoes to make enough money for a bed, and then that he only had enough money for one bed. And, and he chose himself. Guess what? Apparently. Yeah. yeah. Guess, guess who slept in the bed? So she was going to go try to make some more money. But ended up in the pub where she was she got fucked up. I don't know how you get fucked up without any money, but I'm sure it's a you know, it's a community of alcoholics. Right. It, you know, one's Just wealth is yeah. everyone's wealth. If you're the girl at the bar, like, someone's, yeah. someone's buying somebody's you drinks. Buying somebody's you drinks. buying you drinks. And so previously she's had several intoxication in public. She's actually been arrested for being intoxicated in public. And being in London in Whitechapel, you can imagine how fucked up you have to be to get arrested. Right. Seeing how all of the alcohol, alcoholics day after day, night yeah. after day. It, so, you know, yeah. So you've got to be pretty was, fucking drunk. Yeah. This was one of those instances where she was acting a fool outside and there was actually a crowd that started gathering up around her and she got in taken into custody into a drunk tank that night. And like she was, she couldn't move like, drunk she was laying on the ground so yeah she's in the drunk tank she starts talking to the officers and she's like well wh when are you gonna let me out and they pretty much tell her whenever you're functional you know when you, when you can handle yourself and somehow she convinces them enough that uh she's functional she can take care of herself and they let her out unfortunately for her right Unbeknownst to her, this was a bad idea. Mm -hmm. She starts making her way back to where her... Neither one of those men were her husbands. They were just relationships, even though they were, like, years, like, seven years at a time. 
never got married, never popped the question. Either way, she's uh, making her way to the hotel uh, where John was staying. Yeah, John Kelly, you got it. Yeah, John <laughs> Kelly. And she never makes it there. So I'm assuming she was still intoxicated. And she ends up in this corner alley. So she was discovered by um, a man named Alfred Long. He seen like a blood-covered apron underneath the door. She was discovered in like a common stairway area. And her body was fucked up. Unlike yours. Yep. This, this is also my personal opinion. I feel like he got interrupted during his first murder that night. And he took all of the anger out in this lady. The rage. Yeah. I I, wa- I saw the pictures and she was just... It was bad. Messed up. Her yeah. face was destroyed. Her body was discovered at 1.44 in the morning. The body was on its back with her clothes drawn up above her waist, just like your guys' with her legs ex- exposed. Her insides were pulled out and draped over her shoulder. There was part of an intestine that looked intentionally placed between her arm and her side. Her eyelids were split in half. Both of her bottom eyelids and and then the upper eyelids also had cuts on them. The right earlobe was cut all the way through. Her throat was cut straight, straight across, which they determined that was the cause of death was the severance of the cradle artery and yeah she was just her you know everything was covered in blood and her like whatever feces from the intestines when she was found there was no stiffening so that makes them believe that she was only dead for 30 minutes so her rigor mortis, rigor mortis didn't set. right so she was covered in blood and feces yeah i mean they don't notice this guy covered in this shit, literally. Right, that was the report, too, is that he's he still must have been bloodied from the last, from Elizabeth, because she was still bleeding out, and, and you cut an artery or your throat, you're going to get messy. Right, she almost decapitated. Right, so. And then, yeah, her uterus was missing, and her kidney was missing. Later on, they actually find one of the big evidence, which was a piece of her apron was found east of the body. So the murder was west of your body because mm-hmm. when the apron was found, it was east. And they look at the map, and it shows that he headed back towards the first murder, which was like, how is this guy walking between all the officers, all this crime scene, and how confident is this guy? Right, and he's covered literally with blood and shit. That was... That was it. That's it for Catherine Eddowes. Okay. Well, the last victim is actually, I think, the youngest. She was 25. Her name was Mary Kelly. Mary Kelly, or Mary Jane Kelly. She did have a couple of nicknames. And the thing about her is they didn't know or have too much information on her. She was also known as Marie Jeanette Kelly. Fair Emma, Ginger, Dark Mary, and Black Mary. And they don't even know for a fact if Mary Jane Kelly was her real name. But just her name, surname, or that's what she had people uh, call her. Okay. Now she did have a a boyfriend ish at the time of her death. His name is Joseph Barnett, whom she reportedly lived with right before her death. According to Joseph, she was born in Limerick, Ireland. 
Her father's name was John Kelly, supposedly, and she either had six or seven brothers and one sister. In addition to this, she supposedly moved to Wales as a child. When she was 16, she met and married a collier by the name of Davis or Davies. Three years into their marriage, her husband was killed in a mine explosion. And now being a widow, there again, there's no mention of children. She moved to Clifford, I'm sorry, she moved to Cardiff to live with a cousin who introduces her to the career of prostitution. Sometime in 1884, she makes an acquaintance of a French lady who ran a pretty high-class brothel in Knightsbridge, and Mary established work there. And she, in her life is actually pretty good. She ends up going to Paris a couple of times. She has, she was like a lady. Her life was pretty decent. She did her dress shit. Well, she's doing it with class. the best. Correct, with class. Thank you. <laughs> now, they don't know why, but things basically t- take a sad turn, and she starts drinking, and she ends up in the east end of London. And... On Good Friday, April 6, 1887, a solid year before her unfortunate demise, she meets Joseph, who's a porter at the Billingsgate Fish Market. They move in together, and by 1888, they're renting a tiny room at 13 Miller's Court from a gentleman by the name of John McCarthy. Now, he owns some buildings and chandelier shops and or chandelier shops and other businesses, and it just seems like things are going fairly decent. And they're, they come across as a pretty happy couple until, unfortunately, Joseph loses his job, and so she's got to go back to prostitution. And, of course, this causes problems between them. In fact, during one argument, the one of the window panes in their little shack gets broken because he kind of... This, the argument goes to that direction. Now, unfortunately, because of their finances, and I have no doubt to some degree alcoholism, they fall behind in their rent, and Joseph leaves. He leaves on October 30th, 1888, moves out and leaves Mary there. But she's behind on the overall rent of 29 shillings, and even though they remain on friendly terms, in fact, he was frequently seeing her, like, I want to say almost every day. But even the week prior to her death, I think he came by and saw her every day, including the last evening of her life, which was a Thursday of November 8th. He showed up around 8.30. She, was, she had a friend. He didn't really stay too long. But after he leaves, she goes out. Drinking. They said that she went and had one drink at the Ten Bells public house with a friend named Elizabeth Foster. Later on, she was drinking with a couple acquaintances at the Horn of Plenty, which was a a pub on Dorset Street. And, you know, she's she's got her own place, even though she's behind on rent, but she is unfortunately prostituting. And one of the last people to see her is a gentleman by the name of George Hutchinson, who is himself an unemployed laborer. So, I mean, hard times all around. And he bumps into her on Commercial Street about 2 a.m. of the morning of November 9th. She asks him to lend her a sixpence, which he tells her, I don't got it. And she's like, well, I got I to gotta find the money somehow. 
So he sees her continue along commercial street and he sees this man coming from the opposite direction, tap on her shoulder and say something. And they both kind of start laughing and George sees them basically start walking back along commercial street. The man puts his arm around him. So he's coming kind of like was my understanding back towards George who's standing under the lamp of the queen's head pub and which was located at the junction of fashion street and commercial street. And even though they kind of pass each other, the man puts his head down with his hat over his eyes and Hutchison actually tries to get a look at the man's face. And what George says is like, the man gave me this, you know, very stern look. And something's not right. So George actually follows them to Dorset Street and he watches them go into her place on Miller's Court. And he says that he stayed out there for 45 minutes, but they didn't come out. And so he leaves. But around 4 a.m., two of Mary's neighbors hear a faint cry of murder, the word murder, but because of the brutality of the area, just used to it. So they don't stick their heads out. People get murdered all the time over there. Yeah. Right. You know, people are fighting in the streets, screaming at each other. Mind your business. Right. So they ignore it. Now, in the morning, John McCarthy, who owns her little pad, looks at the books and sees that Mary's in the red. He owes her money. So he sends his man, Thomas Bauer, to Mary's house to collect rent. Bauer arrives around 1040, and he knocks on the door twice, and he receives no answer. So he comes around and he looks through the glass plane, especially the part that got knocked out from one of their fights, and he moves the curtains to see if Mary Kelly's inside. And he sees what he calls like two lumps of meat sitting on the bedside table. So these are like body parts. And then he sees this horrific scene on her bed and he lits out. He runs back to McCarthy's office. He snatches him up and they go back. McCarthy looks into the broken window pane, sees that this is just a horrific, bloody mess in her apartment and He sends Bauer to find the first copper he sees, and he comes across Inspector Walter Beck and a detective, Walter Dew, basically chatting on Commercial Street. And he runs up to them, and they already figured this is bad. And so they go, and they see the carnage through the broken window, and they're like, you know, let's let's bring in the rest. Now, later on, Detective Dew would later state, would give this statement. On the bed was that, on the bed was all the remained of the woman. There was little left of her, not much more than a skeleton. Her face was terribly scarred and mutilated. All of, all this was horrifying enough, but the mental picture of that sight, which remains most vividly with me, and the, is the poor woman's eyes. They were wide open, and they seemed to be staring straight at me with a look of terror. Now, the room is pretty much empty because she's poor, and her body is in the middle of the bed with her head turned. Her left arm, partially removed, was also on the bed. 
The abdominal cavity was empty. Her breast and facial features were cut off, and she was severed from her neck to her spine. Her her dismembered organs and body parts were placed in different areas of the room, but they couldn't find her heart. Her heart, they never find it. It's missing. It's gone. Her bed was covered in blood, and the wall by the bed was splashed, splashed with her blood. Then they find her clothes neatly folded in the chair next to her bed. And they also realize that there are articles of clothing burning in her fireplace. In fact, they they have no doubt Jack the Ripper started this fire because it was hot enough to melt part of her kettle. And right there next to the fireplace is her boots. So, I mean, he's just set this entire room up. And they actually think that he starts this fire to kind of get the attention for people to look in and be like, what the hell's going on in here? They even take photos of her brutal sling. And unfortunately, she's the only victim. And they think, you know, he had ample time with her. They think she's this brutally dismembered because he not only was inside, he wasn't guaranteed to be interrupted by anybody. Now, there was even a delay of response because they were hoping to get bloodhounds to follow the bloody scent, but that didn't pan out. There was problems with the bloodhounds. And they eventually get her onto the to the mortuary, and she gets taken to the mortuary in the churchyard of St. Leonard's Church, Shoreditch, and they conduct an autopsy for two and a half hours. The the attending physicians was a Thomas Bond and a George Baxter Phillips. Uh, they come to the conclusion that she was killed roughly about 12 hours prior, and this was about 4, 5 in the evening now, so about 4 o'clock in the morning. Phillips will go on to state this. In each case, the mutilation was inflicted by a person who had no scientific nor atomic knowledge. In my opinion, he does not even possess the technical knowledge of a butcher or horse slaughterer or person accustomed to cutting dead animals. So Phillips is going against the grain of everybody else. Her funeral is conducted on May 19th, November 88. And when word gets out of her death, the crowds just basically rush the church, St. Leonard's Church. And about 1230, they start her procession. And, I mean, the, we're talking a crowd of a 1,000 strong to the point where people are swaying in the crowd all because they want to touch it, touch the, her coffin, see her, you know, head off. And she gets buried at St. Patrick's Roman Catholic Cemetery in Limestone. Now, again, these were the victims. These were the original five Mm-hmm. Well, not original, the, the canonical five, but there were other women slain. And for some particular reason, these are the only five that they're willing to say was definitely related. Well, they're to. all brutal. They're all right. Mes- like it mesmerized the public eye with how basically disgusting this were. Right. These deaths. I mean, the only one was was Elizabeth. Be- only simply because we think he was getting caught or was about to get caught and he didn't have time. But, you know, it's also weird that I just looked at the picture of Mary Jane and it's, it's pretty rough. 
Right. And I know that you guys had mentioned they took pictures, but in a lot of the things I read, they said that Mary Jane was the only one that had photographs, but apparently not. Well, I, they were, they're like stills, but I think they were, I think that's the only picture of the crime scene. Cause, right. Because they, the pictures that we saw for, uh, for, um, Catherine, Catherine. Oh, it looks like autopsies. Right, it looks like autopsy pictures and just, you know, re- recreations of it, like pencil sketches, but, like, really good. Right. Regardless, it, it describes it really well, what happened to them. Like, he described the eyelids and stuff. I mean, it's all in the picture right there. Right. So, and it's pretty gruesome. Right. And so, I mean, all of them were gruesome to the point where it was like, what the fuck? Exactly. So, I think that's why these stick out above all because, in, you know, nor- let's say normal killings. You know, most of them didn't weren't mutilated this way, so that's why it was such a a sight to see. Because who does this? Right, what kind of animal does this? Right, and then keeps organs and stuff. So, like, what what was the goal? What was the point? Right, because each um, one was so lost. So we're gonna organ. actually get into conspiracies in the next episode. Um, Just yeah. a few, yeah. not too many. We are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that's what we have for you tonight on Do Business. We have a Facebook page, Facebook, Facebook, Facebook. If you're curious or interested and would like to join, send us a request. But we also have a contest. The contest is send us an email telling us the very first episode that you listened to that got you listening to us from there. And all entries need to be in by, because it's, it's a contest in reflection to our anniversary. I believe all of them need to be in by the 8th. I'll double check that. Of September. Of September. So we can announce the winner in the September 8th episode because that's a Thursday. Let us know your favorite episodes too. Right. I want to know what we're doing right. Right. Or Or doing wrong. Better. (laughs) (laughs) But if you do have a topic that you would something like to see us host, delve into, find out where their dark corners are. Just send me an email where the dark corners are at gmail.com. Okay, final thoughts, Panda. Yeah, these are all pretty bad. That so we started off the episode saying, you know, why would this be the the headliner? Why is this guy so famous for what he did or woman? You know, whoever did it, right? You know, so I'm famous for what they did. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty bad, especially for 1800s, right? Like, you know, why? Final thoughts, Polar Bear. Before I started looking into it. I actually thought there would be more. Like, even, I think, what they say, there possibly 11. Right. There were other women. But, I mean, it was, the, the the important part about this one was that it was, A, like you guys said, gruesome, but B, that it was in such a short period of time. There was no take a break. It was just one after the other after yeah. the other. It was in, within, what, three three months period? Well, he didn't do it in October. Right. With the August 31st, so I mean basically September. Yep. And then literally the next week, or next end of the month. Yeah. And then November. Right. wonder what was going on in September. Maybe he was born. Maybe he had a birthday. <laughs> <laughs> or he was out of town. Yeah, I don't know what was going on. We'll everyone, was poor. <laughs> everyone was poor. Where were they going? I don't know. Final thoughts, Samantha. Um, mainly just that this guy's sick, but he had a very clear M.O., and he picked the very, very similar, similar people and killed them in very similar ways. So I think these five were undeniable. Okay. But until next time, please remember, 
Only the few can find the beauty in the darkness, which is why we hope to meet you where the dark corners are. We started this one pretty light. <laughs> Get it out now, so. I'm cutting it all. Ah, <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs>